good to be back and worshiping with you. We were at annual conference last week. My family were there, and um, it feels like it's been a long time since I've seen your faces, and so it's good to be back. On the flip side, I leave this afternoon for vacation, so <laughs> it'll be another couple weeks until I see your faces again. Um, annual conference was a good experience uh, for us. We're going to report more on annual conference in a couple of weeks. Um, my kids enjoyed it for the most part. They, Jameson, uh, six years old, he participated in the uh, K through second grade activities, and they wore him out uh, every night. He was very tired. Um, Sunday morning, he was in his full tired glory. Um, he was uh, given a chocolate chip muffin for breakfast instead of a cookie. And this was devastating to him, and he displayed his devastation for everyone. Um, the, the comforting side for us as parents and as pastor and ch with children is I had several other friends there, pastors, who had taken their kids, and at different times throughout the week, we all had children walking out crying, and, and we commiserated with one another. The beauty, I think, of a church is that we bring all of that with us. We bring all those parts of us that we'd rather not everyone see. And I hope that as a church, we are inviting and welcoming and understanding those different situations as they come into the church, as we all bring our baggage on Sundays and, and throughout the week that we're hearing one another, that we're um, meeting each other, that we're understanding what each other is going through. And I think forgiveness is, is a big part of this. I, I've, as I was thinking this morning about forgiveness, we're all born with a sense of, of justice. I think that's part of what it means to be created in God's image. God is a, is a just God. And so we all have this part of us that longs for justice. And yet in our humanity, we often have a distorted sense of justice. Especially in our culture today, we, we want justice and we don't often talk about what forgiveness looks like. As we come this morning, would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. Would you speak to, our, to us this morning through me or despite? In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has talked about humbling ourselves in the kingdom. He's talked about sin He's talked about how we, as the body of Christ, hold one another accountable in love and grace and with the purpose of restoration. Jesus, before the section that we read this morning in Matthew 18, uh, in a passage that has been so loved and preached on in the Church of the Brethren, a process of dealing with sin and brokenness in the community of faith, it's a process intended for holding one another accountable who have committed to following Jesus. It's a process meant to seek reconciliation and restoration to the community. It's not for shaming and ostracizing those 
who have messed up. And after Jesus talks about how we might confront one another in love, how we might seek restoration of the community, Peter speaks up, as Peter often does. He says, Lord, if a brother sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? We skip right to Jesus' response. But Peter is actually being very generous here. He's actually going above and beyond what most teachers of the law required. Most teachers might require three times. If somebody has, has harmed you three times and they've asked for forgiveness, after that third time, maybe they don't really mean that forgiveness. And so most teachers only required three times to forgive them. And after that, you could send them off. You no longer had to offer forgiveness. And so Peter is actually being very generous here. He's starting to get a little bit of what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus blows his listeners, his disciples, away with a story of radical forgiveness. How many times should people be forgiven? Seven? Jesus says no in the the text is, in the original language, is a little unclear whether it's 77 or 70 times 7. The point is, is that you and I are not supposed to be God's sin accountants or his auditors. We're not supposed to be keeping track of the times that we forgive. Rather, Jesus tells a story about radical love and forgiveness. A king decided to settle accounts. And one servant owed him millions. There's no way that this servant is ever going to be able to pay back the debt he owes to the king. We wonder how did he ever come to owe so much. Different scholars offer different explanations of how someone could ever owe this much money. That's not really the point. The point is the debt he owed could never be repaid. He owed so much. The servant was ordered to be sold into slavery along with his family. It wouldn't recoup the king's cost, but it would be better than the nothing he's going to receive back from the servant. This parable in particular highlights a couple things about parables that I think we need to understand. Sometimes there are parts of the story that we just don't need to figure out and understand. When I read this scripture and I hear about the king ordering the servant to be sold into slavery, it made me wonder, does God approve of slavery? Is God really that cruel? Jesus tells parables for a, a theological reason. But we need to keep from theologizing parts of the story that aren't really the point. Jesus tells this part of the story to highlight the debt, to highlight the huge amount owed to the king. And in Jesus' ancient world, it was not uncommon for someone and their family to be sold into slavery to recoup the debt. Certainly the entire Bible, from the law given in the Old Testament to Paul's undermining of slavery in the book of Philemon, 
raises up the cause of those oppressed by slavery. The parable itself is not about slavery, so don't take that reference as endorsement of slavery. It's not about God's harshness. It's about the amount of debt owed. Look with me at verse 26. <clears throat> the servant pleads, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. There's no way that this servant could ever repay this amount. 10,000 talents was more than the whole Galilee region paid in tribute to Rome. It was a huge, massive amount of money. It was more money than really what was in circulation in Galilee at that time. The hearers would have heard this and their eyes would have just, he owed how much? How could you possibly ever owe that much money? I, it's a, an unfathomable amount of money. It would take him over 164,000 years of an honest day's work to repay that amount. And yet in verse 27, the king forgives the debt. Just as that debt was an unimaginable amount, the grace of this forgiven debt is equally incredible. An incredible amount of grace and mercy has just been shown. An impossible debt has been forgiven. Something completely unmerited. Something that that servant had not earned. It's forgiven. What kind of king forgives such a debt? But the servant heads out. Forgiven and released from something he could never repay. And he turns around and finds someone who owes him. They owe him about three months' pay. A significant amount, but not something that we can't imagine. It's not an unheard of sum of money. And the forgiven servant takes the other to jail. He's experienced forgiveness of debt. And yet he turns around and demands just a portion of what was owed him. Others see the injustice of what has happened and they come and they report it to the king. But I wonder, with this first forgiven servant, did he realize his debt had been forgiven? Did he realize that the king no longer demanded payment? The king had, had ripped up the contract. Nothing was owed anymore. And yet that servant had said, have patience with me. I will repay it. Maybe he still is trying to repay that debt. Maybe he's gone out and demanded that somebody pay him back in order that he might start to put that money towards the debt that he owed. Not realizing that the debt doesn't exist anymore. He's still trying to repay his debt. The king finds out. He says, you wicked slave, your debt was forgiven. 
You no longer owed anything. Why are you trying to pay me back for something that I've already forgiven? Why are you trying to work your way out of the hole when I've said, you're no longer in the hole? You no longer owe me anything. Why are you trying to repay this debt? You should have gone and forgiven the debts owed you. Instead, you want to try and repay your debt? Then repay the entire debt. If I'm honest, I was sitting down this week looking at this parable, and it raised just a lot of questions for me. A lot of questions about what forgiveness really looks like for us. And I think so many times we struggle with the practical sides of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a great idea and we love to talk about it as an idea. But practically speaking, so much of the time, our families, our churches, certainly our society, are torn apart because we fail to practically live out forgiveness. One of the questions I asked this week is, is our forgiveness really based on how we forgive others? That's what Jesus insinuates at the end of this parable. I also want you to look at, we read the the Lord's Prayer this morning out of Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. After Jesus has taught his disciples to pray, one of the interesting things too about the Lord's Prayer is um, Jesus starts it, when you pray, say this. And we often take the Lord's Prayer as a model of prayer. But Jesus is actually saying, when you pray, say these words. And so I think it's important for us from time to time to actually pray the Lord's Prayer. If Jesus taught us how to pray, let's pray that way. But as he ends the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. If we really are forgiven, if you and I have really been forgiven the debt we owed, there's really only one way for us to respond. It's for us to forgive others. Or maybe... Sometimes we are too prideful and we're still trying to pay off our debt to God. We don't owe anything anymore. Jesus has forgiven our debt. Everything we owed, the unimaginable debt that you owed God, God says, forget it. Because of Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, you no longer owe him anything. I wonder, does forgiving mean forgetting? We always hear that. You forgive and you forget. That sounds great. Man, there's a lot of stuff that people have forgiven, and we just can't forget. And there's times where it would be unwise for us to just forget what's happened. We can try to move on, but we can't always forget, and sometimes it's unwise for us to forget. 
I also ask the question, how can we forgive and yet move ourselves out of danger or remove ourselves from being victimized again? We can forgive, but to, to remain someone's punching bag in a relationship, to, to remain in abusive situations, that's just silly. And too often, I think, historically in the church, we've told people, to just stay put. You just, you just forgive and move on. If you're suffering abuse, Jesus doesn't want you to stay there. You don't have to continue to be a victim. On the other side of that, another question that I ask as I read this parable how do we care for offenders and victims? It's a tricky question and never a simple solution. We talk sometimes in the church about restorative justice. How we can care for the people that have been hurt deeply and how we can care for the people that have hurt others. It's something the church has to wrestle with. I don't have a one-size-fits-all situation. I've been a part of situations where somebody has been hurt deeply. And the church looked for creative solutions in order to continue to minister to the person that had offended. In some situations, that involved a small group, a house church, coming around and, and worshiping with the person that had created this terrible situation, that had offended someone in a very deep way. And maybe it wasn't right for that person to come and to worship with everyone on a Sunday morning. We offered to care for that person that had been hurt and to provide care for that person that had offended. But it's a hard, tricky question for us. To acknowledge the hurts and brokenness and to seek healing for all involved. Another question I had. This, this passage, frankly, raised more questions for me than it did answers. Does being forgiven remove the consequences of sin? If I've been forgiven, does that mean the consequences of my actions are just wiped away? And I think the answer is no. We still deal with the consequences of our actions. There's real consequences for sin in our world. God will forgive us. And we pray and we hope that the body of Christ might forgive. But there might be consequences for our actions that we have to live with. I'm not sure how many years ago, 14, 15 years ago, I was sitting in my college dorm watching the news, not knowing that I would soon be connected to this community. And I watched in southern Lancaster as an Amish community was forever changed by a, a man with um, severe depression with lots of mental baggage 
going into an Amish school and, and shooting some of the children before shooting himself. And the world watched as the Amish community offered incredible forgiveness. And lots of people looked on and wondered, how could we ever forgive like that? Incredible forgiveness and yet very real consequences for the actions that had happened there. Everyone, it seemed like the news and, and everyone really grabbed on to that radical display of, of forgiveness and love. It made a great story for a couple news cycles, and then we forget about it. If we forgive, this is another question I have. If we forgive 77 times, or we forgive 70 times 7, whatever it is there, how many times are we expected to ask for forgiveness for one action if someone is not willing to forgive? What happens if we're the person and we know we've offended someone and we come and we ask for forgiveness and we mean it and we're genuinely sorry about the things that we've done and that person just doesn't want anything to do with it. They're not ready to forgive do we have to ask 77 times? Do we have to ask for forgiveness 70 times 7? Honestly, my answer is, if you've genuinely asked for forgiveness, it seems to me that the burden is then put on the other to forgive. This parable, unfortunately, doesn't answer many of these questions. It doesn't give us a lot of details about forgiveness. But what is clear is how seriously Jesus takes forgiving others. That you and I are called as followers of Jesus to release people from the debt they owe. God forgave us for a debt that was immeasurable. A debt that we could never hope to repay. And the proper response to that is not to try and earn anything. It's not trying to repay the debt even after it's forgiven. The proper response for us is to live in love and forgiveness and grace and to extend that grace to others. If we're really honest with ourselves, we're each that first servant. If God really wants paid back for everything we owe, friend, we're out of luck because we can't pay it back. We owe so much more than we could ever pay back. See, I'm a liar and a cheater and a coveter. I've been greedy and lustful and an idolater. I've let the sun go down on my anger time and time again. I've been a bad husband and a bad father. But by the grace of Jesus, the king has freed me from the debt that I owe. I'm released from the chains and I'm released from slavery to sin. And I'm going to guess that you have a similar story. That you've been forgiven of a debt that you could never hope to repay. 
how could we ever experience such grace and forgiveness and then turn around and demand to be repaid the debt of others? There's an author, Klein Snodgrass, who writes this about our parable. He says, the message of this parable is badly needed by churches and individuals who live in a society where people insist on standing on their rights and division marks our churches, families, and societies. The teaching of the parable is counterintuitive, but it is possibly the most forceful expression of how Christians should live. Christian living, rather than insisting on rights, should be a continual dispensing of mercy and forgiveness mirroring God's own character and treatment of his people. Imagine a world. Imagine a world where forgiveness matters. Imagine a world where we were quick to forgive rather than holding grudges. Imagine a world where we released one another from the debts we owe. The church is called as a people who have experienced the freedom, the love, and the grace of the king, who know the debt they have been freed from, and now we are called to extend the same freedom, love, and grace to others. Our memory verse from sports camp a couple weeks ago was be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Imagine a world? Let's start by imagining a church. Imagine modeling another way of living. Imagine a beloved community marked by forgiveness of servants who know the great debt they have been forgiven and instead of demanding payment from others, we released others from their debts. It takes humility. It's not always easy. But it is what Christ calls us to. As we close in worship this morning, I'd invite you to stand and turn in your brown hymnal to number 425.